Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor, and I'm a mom. We're getting real about all things family from a mental health perspective. So let's get to it. Welcome back to Parenting in the Trenches. In this series on adoption, we thought it was really important to talk about FASD and what that means for parenting. And um, last year, we did a long and really well-received series on neurodevelopment and neurodiverse families. And when we have neurodivergent children, how parenting needs to be shaped differently, how our own self-care needs to be shaped differently, and how our worlds just feel really different. And so um, naming some of the reality of that and also giving us some hope today about how to do that well and what the possibilities are. Um, My guest today is Natalie Vecchioni. She is a FSD FASD parent advocate. She's a podcaster and she's an author, but most importantly, she's a wife and a homeschool mom of two. Natalie and her husband, John, built their family through domestic adoption. Their son, who is 19 now, lives with FASD. He has graduated from homeschool works part-time and lives interdependently. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that looks like um, with his two best friends. Their daughter is six and a half and they have a much different adoption journey with her. They're really close with uh, their daughter's birth mom. Natalie turned her family's unique challenges and journey with FASD from a career reinvention into a calling. I love that. When she and her husband began FASD Hope in October 2020. So if you're curious about that, I'm going to tell you a bit more. Natalie has been an FASD podcaster for almost two years now. And in October 2020, Natalie and John co-founded FASD Hope, which is a podcast, a website, and a place for awareness, information, and inspiration for those whose lives have been touched by FASD. The FASD Hope podcast series is through the lens of parent advocates with over 19 years of lived experience. And it's available pretty much wherever you find your podcast. So check that out. Natalie's recent book called Blazing New Homeschool Trails, Educating and Launching Teens with Developmental Disabilities by Natalie Vecchioni and Cindy LaJoy is now available on Amazon. I'll put all of that in the show notes. But for now, let's have a live conversation with Natalie. Natalie, I'm so glad you joined us today. We've got a few things to talk about, and um, we have some overlapping experiences here, not so much on the FASD front, but on the adoption side of things and openness in adoption. And I know your journey has been a little different between your kids. Um, So maybe we'll start there. Uh, Welcome here. And would you kick us off with a bit of a summary about how your family developed to what it is today? Absolutely. Uh, very non-traditionally is, is how I would say our family developed. Uh, before I start, I want to say I love the name of your podcast. I think it's so perfect because oh. it's just, it, it captures the feelings that we have when we're parenting, uh, when, we, when, when we have hard parenting journeys. It captures that, yeah, you're in the trenches and knowing that somebody else is in the trench trenches with you is very reassuring. So I just wanted to say, I, I really love, 
love your title and what your podcast does. Um, So I, my husband and I, uh, we, um, I had a total abdominal hysterectomy when I was 28 due to very severe endometriosis. So we Mm -hmm. created our family through adoption, domestic adoption. Um, Our son, we adopted him uh, when he was two and a half weeks old. He was considered a medical needs adoption uh, because after he was born, he had some medical issues, which we later found out many years later was related to his prenatal alcohol exposure. So uh, we have a, in the beginning, so our son will be 20 this year. In the beginning, his birth mom wrote us letters, uh, but she stopped that when he was about two. So really we have very little information uh, about our son's background. Uh, We know nothing about his birth father. Um, And then, uh, so he is 20 now. And um, I'll share a little bit about our journey in a second. And our daughter, Mm -hmm. we have a totally different experience. Uh, She has a totally different adoption journey. Our daughter's birth mother was actually one of my former flute students when we were living in Philadelphia, as well as she and her sister um, used to babysit, excuse me, my son when he was younger. So we had moved Mm -hmm. away from Philadelphia and we were living in New York and uh, it was around 2014. Um, Our son was 12 at the time, uh, almost 13. And uh, our, um, our daughter's birth mom reached out to me through Facebook and messaged me and said, uh, my mom said, um, you, you all were interested in, in looking at adopting again and I'm, I'm pregnant. And would you consider adopting my baby? And, um, just like when we got the phone call for our son, uh, you know, I just kind of dropped to my knees both times and just, you know, um, just, just said, you know, thank you, God. Um, and so her journey is much different. Yeah. Yeah. Her journey is much different. So we know we, we consider her our my daughter's adoption, it's extremely open. Um, my husband is in contact with her birth father and pretty much, I would say several times a week, we text and send pictures to, um, my daughter's birth mother and her birth aunt and her other, you know, aunt. And, and so we have this very open, um, relationship with her and her family. So it's, and that's something I've had to, uh, it's a balancing act. Any of you listening out there, if you have a a child with a closed adoption journey and a child with an open adoption journey, it's a balancing act because there were many times, uh, it really wasn't until about a year or two ago that our son was able to um, really, he's still heal, he's still healing, but embrace how close we were to our daughter's um, birth family. So you have to yeah. have that respect, you know, so it, it, it's, yeah. it's definitely a balancing act, but yeah. So, so, <laughs> and my husband and I were not planning on having our children 13 years apart, but, um, <laughs> that's I was going to say, and the age gap, that's a whole dynamic yeah, in and of itself. Yeah. Our, yeah. our son will be 20 and our, our daughter will be seven. So yeah, we have a 13 year wow. age gap, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. <laughs> but I, I, I embrace it and I love it because we learned so much from parenting our son mm-hmm. and now our daughter's journey is much different and yeah. yet we're able to use everything we've learned about, you know, just parenting our son, you know, who has a neurodiversity, who has a developmental disability, 
use that when, you know, with our daughter and just really looking at her and her brain and who she is and, and what's behind things. You know, I, I learned with our son, I, I learned, <laughs> it took me a long time, but I really learned that when you parent a child, whether, you know, adopted, whether uh, who's experienced trauma uh, and that trauma be prenatal or lived experience, or just, um, I like to say, when you parent a child who's in a hard place, you really yeah. have to, as a parent, step back and say, okay, what's going on in their brain? What's going on in their body? Instead of, oh, this is just a willful behavior. So right. really, that, that's a big part of who we are, You know why we founded our, our podcast, why we founded our book, is because my husband and I just learned this, okay, it, it was really a paradigm shift for us. And we needed to share it with other parents so they could understand that when you do make that shift from, oh, they, they don't want to do something to, oh, their brain is not let, not letting them do it. Then you parent differently. And that parenting differently is extremely helpful in helping that child grow um, developmentally. It's an incredible mind shift when we go from my, my child won't to my child can't. We hear those stories over and over in, in, you know, in the counseling office, in podcast interviews, anybody who has been through the hard zone with kids and has been changed by it and has learned from it. I find there's this common i can't keep this stuff to myself because it's so it changes so profoundly how we are in relationship with our children that it feels like we can't let other parents not know about this right it just changes so much to also say too our son you know gave us his consent to share our journey to you know for me to co-author this book to write you know, to start this podcast and to help other parents because, you know, his words verbatim were, mom, I don't want another kid to have to go through what I went through. You know, we, we, it was 15 years before we finally received the correct appropriate diagnosis. And those were 15 very hard years. So he, if, if our sharing our journey can help a family receive the right diagnosis and to, to make that paradigm shift mm-hmm. much sooner than we did, then yeah, yeah we, we definitely yeah. understand why we're on that journey. And that's why he, he, he has shared, you know, I don't want um, other kids to have to go through what, what I went through. Yeah. Can we talk a bit about what FASD is so when we talk about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder i think the very nature of most disorders is that it's not cookie cutter there are lots of gray areas about trying to understand and that's why professionals and lived experience come so important and key to really understanding our kids because it is not super straightforward most of the time for most diagnoses and i I want to kind of tap your 
breadth of experience from the number of years you have walked this and researched and advocated and come into contact with so many people, where are you at? Can you help us unravel the picture of FASD? Not the diagnostic list, but the picture. <laughs> what does it look like, feel like, parent-like, experience-like? What's happening? What's happening? I can try. Yeah. So I guess to give you that five-minute elevator talk, as, as, as we all like yeah. to joke around. So FASD <laughs> is a term for the disabilities that have been caused by prenatal alcohol exposure. FASD stands for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And under the umbrella of FASD are five different diagnoses, again, caused from prenatal alcohol exposure. Fetal alcohol syndrome, which is what most people think of when they think of FASD, they think of the quote unquote face, the facial characteristics, the small head, things like that, which only happen in one out of 10 FASD diagnoses. So it's not as... Full-blown FAS is not as common. It's We don't see those outward characteristics in 90% of the kids, teens, adults who are diagnosed with FASD. So FAS yeah. is, is the first diagnosis under that umbrella, under this spectrum umbrella. Partial fetal alcohol syndrome is the second. The third is alcohol-related birth defects. The fourth is neurobehavioral disorder associated with prenatal alcohol exposure, or NDPAE. And the fifth one is alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder, or ARND. So those five, five diagnoses are under the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder umbrella. And basically, they are disabilities. FASD is a brain-based, whole-body disability caused by prenatal alcohol exposure. And as a spectrum disorder, we know with other spectrum disorders, such as autism, uh, it looks different with every child, every teen, every adult. Because yeah. with FASD, when the alcohol affects the unborn child, plus a number of other factors, including you know maternal health, maternal diet, trauma, uh, there's a whole... Uh, constellation of factors that can affect an FASD, not just the alcohol. So right. we, we share um, in the FASD community that it's really important to recognize that not only is the brain affected by the alcohol exposure, but the body is. There are over 400 comorbid medical diagnoses that can come with an FASD. And Again, looking back as, you know, when we first brought home our son, our son was born with medical needs, which we later found out were related to his prenatal alcohol exposure. So uh, the, there are some key things to remember with FASD uh, that I would like to communicate and, and, and what I've learned as a parent. Number one, it's a lifelong disability. You don't outgrow FASD. And I shared in my book, and I, I think I, I may have shared with you, Karen, that when we were first told that our son had, they suspected prenatal alcohol exposure, the 
uh, neurologist at the sleep study who is, uh, it was a hospital that we were, uh, we didn't normally take our son to. It was a different teaching hospital. The neurologist came in uh, for the follow-up visit. My son was on uh, my lap facing the doctor and the group of medical students and my husband was sitting next to me and the doctor very flippantly said, Oh, look at that child. He has mild fetal alcohol effects, which again, there is no such thing as mild fetal alcohol effects. Uh, fetal alcohol is, is the most harmful of all the teratogens. Uh, you know, yeah. alcohol is the most harmful and it's lifelong. So he said that and, and my husband and I were just, we didn't know what to do. And we said, well, this is the first time somebody's mentioned this. And the neurologist said, oh, well, just put him in early intervention and he'll be fine. And we know that. Yeah. And, and Karen, the other thing is he never wrote down the diagnosis. So it was a verbal, he told us verbally. It wasn't until 13 years after that, did we actually receive a written diagnosis of our son having NFASD. And all the in between, all the time in between, we would ask whenever our son would see a new specialist or educational professional, yeah, anything. Yeah. We would always say, "Hey, we were told this when he was two. Could this be it?" And everybody said no, until I went to a parent group and met with a parent navigator who said. Yes, I believe you. And and yay, that parents! Was, exactly. You know, <laughs> oh my goodness, it was it's, it's so, so validating to hear, especially yeah. you know from other parents who have children yeah. that have your child's diagnosis. They know it from it's, the inside out. They know exactly, it. exactly. Yeah. So, a couple of fast facts about FASD. Number one, it is the leading cause of disabilities, of preventable disabilities, um, alcohol, I want to say this properly so that your listeners can hear it. Prenatal alcohol exposure is the leading preventable birth defect in the United States. And a lot of FASD, uh, we, a lot of the awareness and advocacy we do um, involves, you know, no amount of alcohol is safe during pregnancy. And if you are thinking about, you know, conceiving, stop any consumption of alcohol. No amount of alcohol is safe. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is the prevalence of FASD is so much higher than than we think. A recent 2018 study done here in North Carolina by Dr. Philip May at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, estimated that one in 20 children have an FASD. And this was a JAMA published study. This was uh, this is really one of the uh, hallmark studies that, that we look to to say the prevalence is much higher than, yeah. than we know. So we know that number is higher than autism. It's higher yeah. than many other developmental disabilities put together. So the prevalence is much higher. And then finally, the impact of alcohol, prenatal alcohol exposure, is so much more damaging than we think because you mm-hmm. can't see inside the brain. My mm-hmm. son actually, prior to diagnosis, he had a couple of MRIs, which none of which indicated 
his having an FASD. Interesting. Now, some of okay. them do if it's if it's very very severe, but you know, in many times, nine times, you know, I don't know the statistic for MRIs but and, and for FASD, often, but I can tell you that it's it, yeah because yeah. the impact is in the brain. We know that alcohol crosses the limbic system, so um, you know things like memory. Um, executive functioning, processing, language processing, uh, visual hearing processing. Um, there are so many primary characteristics of having an FASD. And so I guess the final thing I want to leave um, before I start talking about our parenting journey, uh, which actually all of this ties into our parenting journey, is FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, is the most undiagnosed, misdiagnosed, and underdiagnosed of all developmental disabilities. And it's really a lifelong disability. So when you're parenting a child that has an FASD, it's not just, okay, you're an adult now, you're done. And and I'll talk about this a little further in yeah. our interview. There's You really have to learn the dance of interdependence. Uh, yeah. But... Um, yeah, chronic because of how alcohol impacts the brain, there is one of the biggest hallmark traits of FASD is something known as dismaturity, which is very, we hear that a lot in neurodiversity um, communities. So we know dismaturity is the gap between chronological age, um, which would be above, and then developmental age, which would be lower. Yeah. Now, with FASD, with other developmental disabilities, as they get older, many um, are able to, the trajectory doesn't widen so dramatically in the teen years as FASD does. So, okay. in other words, what we saw in our son he was able to go to, I, I call regular school because we help, we've been homeschooling for the past eight years, but he was able to go to regular school. He just received, you know, pull out reading, pull out maths, that kind of thing. As he grew older and as more was expected from him, which would be executive and adaptive functioning, then that dismaturity gap widened. And that is a, yeah. a big hallmark trait in FASD. And we see that. And then Say you you have adopted a child who experienced trauma, lived trauma, or you know yeah. any other type of, and also acknowledge there is trauma in adoption. Period. Your child is yes. not always with their biological parents, so there's that inherent trauma. Um, so yes. there there are layers of trauma on top of the prenatal trauma, and then when you get mm -hmm. to puberty. Not only do the expectations of our society, community, schools, et cetera, grow, we expect, you know, okay, teens yeah. now, they should be able to remember their, you know, class schedule or remember their locker combination, that kind of thing. We're putting more demands on them and their brain is still progressing at a trajectory that's not as, um, not as in line with, you know, their chronologically aged peers. So the yeah. gap widens and the gap widens. And that's where we see the secondary characteristics, things like depression, um, self-harm, yeah. anxiety, 
so many other things because we are trying to, again, trying to make them work harder rather than say, yeah, oh, to keep up. Okay, yeah. Exactly. Rather yeah. than shift yeah. that paradigm of thinking to they can't do something. It's not that they won't. Yeah. When you were talking about the prevalence rates and how often this is underdiagnosed, misdiagnosed, um, particularly in the area of, um, of adoption, because I remember, I remember being told by our adoption agency social worker that when you're reading the proposal for the adopted for the adoptee potentially, they the medical outline is going to say this, this, and this. This is the information you're going to be provided. Because it's self-report from birth parents, you are likely to find that they severely underreport alcohol and drug use during pregnancy. And so your job is to kind of expect to triple whatever they are reporting. That's what we were told. And I remember nothing else on that form we had to do any kind of formula interpretation for or adjusting. It was just, well, this is the best we could find out about this birth parent's medical history. You know, they were willing to tell us if there was diabetes in the background. They were willing to tell us if there was some anxiety disorder in their history. But when it came to how much alcohol was ingested during pregnancy, the shame attached to that in our culture meant that they were underreporting. I understand that, right? And, and so right from the get-go, before we even had a child in arms, we were already experiencing and coming across this the stigma. stigma. Mm-hmm. And, and that, so I, can you talk about that? The stigma of parenting, the stigma of FASD? Absolutely. So I, I actually had the um, privilege, the honor of interviewing Dr. Kenneth Lyons-Jones, who was one of the two mm-hmm. doctors who discovered fetal alcohol syndrome almost 50 years ago in 1973. Amazing. And he told me that stigma is the biggest, biggest problem of why FASD is not further along and recognized and treated and and everything that it should be. Because there is such stigma in, you know, we... We shame birth parents. We shame, you know, biological parents. There are so many parents who have children uh, who, you know, who have their children and their children acquire all these diagnoses and they didn't realize that, oops, you know, I I drank before I realized I was pregnant, you know? Um, So there is such a stigma associated with FASD. So I guess to explain to your listeners, imagine just your child having a a medical diagnosis that impacts their brain. Now imagine trying to find somebody who's going to give you the appropriate diagnosis because either they're worried that, oh, having that label is going to just be horrible for that child, or we right. just know. Just don't it, name it. We'll just exactly. not have to deal with it. Yeah. Exactly. And then mm-hmm. 
the stigma of society, when you say fetal alcohol or fetal alcohol yeah. spectrum disorder or fetal al prenatal alcohol exposure, most of society has a certain picture in their mind. And it's a very right. dark, bleak, uh, not, <laughs> not good prognosis for that child, that teen, that adult. And so parenting a child with an FASD is such a hard, hard journey because not only do you have the complexity of parenting a child that has this brain-based whole body disability, but then you have all of society just about, you know, unless you can find that, that gem of a person who believes you or who supports you. Again, this is why we need this legislation that I'll tell you about in a minute that we're, that's, has been introduced, this national legislation. But you're parenting a child that has a developmental disability, a neurodiversity, and then you have our society that's like, oh, that's bad. Oh, that's bad. We don't even talk about that. That's bad. And, no, and no. I even, I can remember, Karen, when we were redoing our home study for our daughter, uh, you know, who has not been prenatally exposed to alcohol. She, she does not have an FASD. She has neurodiversity, but she does not have an FASD. I remember being in the, uh, the, the class and the social worker, I, I remember we had this activity where we had to like talk about true or false statements when kind of like what you're talking about on the paper, on the form. Oh, is this true or this, is this, is this, you know, false testing your assumptions and exactly yeah. and one of the yeah. statements and i had it, it of course it it came to me i had it one of the statements was um fetal uh, prenatal alcohol exposure is not permanent and i said this is absolutely false and i and this was before our son had his diagnosis because at that point i was already researching fasd i was already learning even though he didn't right. get a diagnosis until a few years later and i told it to the social yeah. worker she's like no it's true it's not permanent and I said, you're a social worker who works with kids Ooh. in foster care and yeah, and, and, and talking slowly, states are starting to recognize, especially in foster care, where more than 80% of children in foster care have an FASD. Um, states are starting to recognize and provide education, but it's very little. I mean, Minnesota is is wonderful. They have, it's mandatory. They had it passed into law a couple of years ago that not only uh, if you have, if you're a child, if, if a child is in foster care, they need to be screened for prenatal alcohol exposure for an FASD. That's fantastic. But then also um, anyone who works with the child needs to take training to learn about FASD. That should be in every state. That should actually be in every oh, country. My goodness, yeah. Honestly. So, yeah. yeah, so there's that stigma of, oh, no, we, we just don't talk about it, even though yeah. it's the most prevalent of developmental disabilities. And it scares us the most. It does. Right. It, it does scare us, us the most because we yep. hear those grim yep. statistics of, of okay, yes. the, the, the life expectancy. That one, we're, you know, that's just the elephant in the room. Let's talk about the life expectancy yep. and, and yep. the studies that say, okay, 30s and mid-30s is life expectancy for someone with prenatal alcohol exposure. Mm -hmm. But what they don't say in those studies is if this person has not been supported, not been properly diagnosed, not had proper right. accommodations and services, that's what they fail to say. So everybody just sees that and says, oh my goodness, 34. Oh, we can't talk about that. Can't enter that. Instead yeah. of, okay, 
get a diagnosis, get the supports, find the people who will support your child, create pathways where there are none. And um, again, like you're talking about, just shift that paradigm to, it's not that my child won't do something, it's their brain can't. And when you yeah. do that, you, you are giving your child, your children, so much more opportunity than those grim statistics. That's right. Absolutely. So it, it's permanent, but it isn't, it, it isn't a static path. Yes. With they're, they're supports, growth. And it actually, expands and it grows yes. and change. And, right. And actually, yes. it, in the FASD training that I've taken um, as a parent and, and that I've spoken with quite a few uh, clinicians and professionals about this, in FASD and other brain-based diagnoses too, brain development usually in, in a typically developing um, young adult, usually in the early 20s, it kind of peaks off and that's about it. In FASD, we see development jumps in the mid twenties and even in the late twenties. Mm -hmm. And that excites mm -hmm. me because our son is about that to is exciting. knowing that yeah. he's got those jumps coming up gives me like hope. And, yeah. and even so, you know, we're at a place he, he lives interdependently. He lives, yeah. you know, away from us, but you know, we're, we're supporting him and, but yet he's supporting himself and we have this really, yeah you know, great. Um, we're, we're just so blessed. We have this wonderful, um, opportunity, this living situation for him that we've created with another family. Um, that really shows that, okay, they can grow. They can, it's like you said, it's not static. It doesn't yeah. have to be static, but again, yeah. you also, it, you can't just say, Oh, it's up to the kid. No, it's up to the no, parent. It doesn't go away. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. Okay, I am most excited about my our last topic of conversation. But before we get to that, I don't want to skip over the hard advocacy work you're doing around the legislation piece. Now, I'm in Canada. We have listeners all over the place. Yeah. But you're based in the States and yeah. you recognize the discrepancy from state to state. And I think the value of us covering this piece is to help envision what's possible in comparison to where we're experiencing it in our own provinces, states, countries, um, regions, right? Yes. So when policy and legislation is made around mental health care, service provision, support-based services, um, diagnostic pieces, right, that medical care, um, what, where are you currently finding the gaps and what are you working toward? What are, what are you noticing are kind of the top eeks points, you know, like the ones like, oh, dang, that's not good. We need something there. And, and what's being done about that in the legislation that you're talking about? So really, I think that the biggest gaps are in once you first of all <laughs> diag the the number of people available who can give an appropriate diagnosis you know finding okay. a doctor you know a clinic to diagnose fasd here in the states is hard mm -hmm. canada actually you all are ahead of the us in terms of um you know mm -hmm. diagnosing in terms of uh, just a, a, quite a few other things you, you all are ahead of us and we look to canada and actually 
Can FASD is a wonderful resource for in, in Canada, as well as some others I can okay. share with you. Um, so yeah. as a parent, I found the biggest gaps are, and we had this discussion prior to recording, where your child receives that diagnosis, but then they don't qualify for services because they mm -hmm. are not at that percentage that qualifies. So maybe, you know, they have a delay, but it's not 40%, it's 30%, so they can't receive it. And so that's one. Um, a, another huge gap is just getting, uh, qualifying for services because of FASD here in the United States, it's not recognized as a developmental, diagnosable developmental disability, which this act that I'm going to talk about in a minute, um, the FASD Respect Act, that's one of the key tenets of it is that the, you know, nationally will recognize FASD as a diagnosable developmental disability. So that's another one. And I know in Canada, there's that, that you know, that, that difficulty too. Um, as our children get older and have an FASD, and as that dysmaturity widens, as those executive functioning lags, you know, worsen or just stay the same. Yeah. I found personally that as our children get older, there you go from minimal services to no services and supports. So yeah. family supports, um, clinical pathways, things like just um, finding, you know, testing in the schools, educating teachers mm -hmm. so they know that what mm -hmm. they're seeing is, is, is brain-based symptoms. In the same way that, you know, other disabilities such as um, autism, they have that, okay, here's a diagnosis, here's a pathway, here's a plan. We don't have that. So um, I would say yeah. all of that, honestly, and especially yeah. now having a, a son who's a young adult, there's nothing when it, it's basically like, okay, you're 18, there you go, you know, unless you have a really significant impact, which you do, you yeah. just can't see it, um, you're, right. you're basically on your own. So here in the States, uh, the FASD Respect Act has been introduced to, uh, to the legislation, to, to Congress. Mm -hmm. And what it says basically is that FASD is a diagnosable developmental disability. It provides funding for prevention, for research, for interventions, for supporting families, to have in each state a, a center of FASD excellence. So similar to autism, where in each state or each province has like a, an autism based, you know, nonprofit or, or you know, yeah. so kind of society affiliation, having that for FASD. And then especially supports as our children get older. So educating, you know, educating the educators, educating community, yeah. it, it just so many, there, it, Basically, FASD affects everyone. And getting this legislation passed um, is just so critical for the FASD community because it, it also just provides hope in that, okay, yes, this is a diagnosable disability. Um, it's and recognized and it's supported. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I would yeah. say that. And then, of course, let's go back to the stigma, you know, by saying, yes, this is, this is more prevalent this, than we realize this is more impactful than we realize, then we can also address and educate that stigma and say, okay, you know what, 
it wasn't so-and-so's fault. We need to educate and talk about prevention more. And then we need to support more and we need to support parents and birth parents. It's just this ripple effect that this, I have a lot of hope. It's called the FASD Respect Act Mm -hmm. in the United States, HR 4151 um, S2238. You can learn more about it from FASDunited.org. Uh, you can also Great. visit FASDhope.com and we can share that information. And I will also give you, Karen, the direct information. Yeah. Um, and I Amazing. know in Canada, oh, yeah. Canada is making strides too. Australia is making huge strides in their FASD advocacy. Yeah, the UK, yeah. um, I'm really hopeful, especially in the past few years and especially you know, the silver lining of COVID is that technology has made advocacy so much more accessible to people and support so much more accessible to people. So uh, having that accessibility increases your opportunity to learn and it increases your opportunity to do something. Amazing. Okay, your advocacy hat, we're going (laughs) to... add your back in your parenting hat now tell us because I'm, I'm buzzing about this okay so we talk about the spectrum of the disorder I want to talk about the spectrum of dependence to inter independence so you beautifully coined that term interdependence which I'm I love it so much that you and I align so well on that front I think everything is about the interdependence Um, We are not striving ever for full independence. We actually need each other. And that's good. It's healthy. It's lovely. What that looks like for kids who are neurodivergent um, has a different color hue to it, right? The painting gets painted slightly differently. And it should be because it should match the needs of the child. It should not match the needs of our hopes or expectations only, right? Our, Our assumptions and our just catch up. We don't want that. So the painting should look different. What does the spectrum look like from your perspective? You've lived some of these um, these legs of the journey, right? Where you had to question, okay, where are we at now? What does interdependence look like now? We know that doesn't just happen when they leave your physical home. That happens all the way throughout of where where are we now in the development stage? And what can we support for an an interdependent situation. So what does it look like? What can it look like? Help us dream. So for us and and, um, my co-author and friend, Cindy Lillejoy and I, we share in our book, Blazing New Homeschool Trails, Educating Launching Teens with Developmental Disabilities. We have a chapter devoted to interdependence. Interdependence is essentially you are utilizing your teen, young adult, adults strengths and incorporating them so that they can live to their fullest potential. And at the same time, I liken it to like a tether cord, you as mm-hmm. the parent caregiver, and we've had to do it all our, our, on our own with the help of, we call them our family, our friends who have become family, who <laughs> you know, who are the parents of our our son's roommates, Um, you have to develop these supports and have things in place and recognize, okay, my young adult, my teen, my young adult will need help with, for example, 
meals, food planning, that kind of thing. So what you do in interdependence, and it's a journey. It, it happens, you know, it, you really can't just say, okay, at 20, we're going to do this. And at 25, no, it's really, you are constantly assessing the needs yeah. and the strengths okay. of your young adult. So how it looked for us, our son, basically, I wrote, I co-offered this book and I talked about how, uh, you know, our son became a carpentry apprentice. And then literally in the fall, he's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to move away from home. And initially we bought our property. We bought our house because we have a a workshop that we were going to convert to a tiny house for him. He's like, I don't want to do that. And that took some grieving because I was like, okay, that's what we were planning for the past four years, but okay. New plans. New plans. plans. And (laughs) what did he want? Mm -hmm. He wanted to have his own place away from mom and dad. Okay, how are we going to do that? It took a lot of faith, a lot of, you know, just discernment. And finally, our our friends who have two young adults, uh, one of whom also has is a neurodivergent, um, who understand our son's needs and strengths. We, we, as, as two families, we said, you know what, these three guys can live together and it can work. And here's how we support wow. them. So for us, you know, we taught them about, okay, this is when the rent is due and this is where it goes. And we made, you know, the, the apartment where our son lives, it's, it's an hour from us. So it's close enough so that he can keep all of his doctors, specialists, you know, therapists, counselors and everything. Yes, that's but it's far one. enough away yeah. from mom and dad where, you know, Hey, mom and dad are not here. Um, it, you know, it, we, you think about things like, okay, does your child, what kind of environment does your child want to live in? Our, you know, our son doesn't have his license, so he lives in an area that he can walk to everything, you know, and, and that's good. Yeah. Or he can ride his scooter to everything. So really interdependence is, it, it's a lot, it, and I hate to say this, it's a lot of work for you parents. And also mm-hmm. it's, it's honesty with your child to say, okay, let's try this. And we, so I'll give, I'll give a, an example. One of the things we, we did was, uh, you know, our, our roommate's family and, and we take turns making meals for our, you know, our kids and putting them in the freezer and just, you know, helping them out and whatnot. So funny story, funny story about interdependence. So we had, my husband and I were like, okay, it's going to be their first Christmas away from home, you know, and and they moved in December. So I had like this turkey dinner and everything, everything was all prepped. All they had to do was eat it. Well, they were just having (laughs) such a good time and just talking that they had ramen for Christmas dinner. (laughs) And however, they all loved it. And And I was like, okay, <laughs> good to know. They just wanted ramen, you know? And I laugh and, and I'm not like saying this in a mocking way. I'm saying this in a, okay, I learned what I thought they would want was totally different. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I learned that, hey, you know what? They like to do, you know, they like to stop by the drive-thru here and stop by the drive-thru there. Okay, G- giving them, you know, some gift cards or, okay, one of the things that we do is on their fridge, we have, okay, this is the envelope for when the rent is due. This is where it goes. This is the, you know, it's really teaching them and being active in that process and 
they have independence, but we are a part of it. And it's a great thing because honestly, it teaches us about how traditional we grew up. I mean, my, my husband and I, we grew up like, (laughs) okay, you're, you're 19. Bye. You know, there you go. And when you parent a child whose brain works differently, again, it's that we have to think of what are they capable of doing, not whether they will or will they won't. Again, my, my preparation of that wonderful turkey dinner and leaving it for them, I thought that, okay, they, they, no, they just wanted to talk and have ramen. And again, that's what they wanted. And Beautiful. that's just, and there was no, huh. I was just like, okay, we'll just uh, noted, <laughs> you know. Um, Noted. And it really is a lot of preparation, a lot of communication, open communication. Um, yeah. And, but, you know, my son is working. He, he has an employer who understands his, his diagnosis and disability mm-hmm. and is training him at his pace, which is amazing. Again, I never, oh, so five good. years ago, Karen, I never thought that would be possible. So, yeah. I have to say with interdependence, you have a lot of hope. You really do. And I'm even thinking like, wow, if, you know, we're only two months into what I call the interdependence experiment, you know, of him living, you know, yeah. with, with his two, his two friends, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm like thinking, wow, I, I can only imagine what's going to happen in a few years, you know, because I, I'm just right. happy that, you know, it's succeeding so far. So yeah, it really well, and is. isn't that the thing? You can't predict. That's no, part of it, no. right? So yeah, you can see what's in front of you if you're willing yeah. to look hard yes. and be a, a good detective and be super curious and stay loving and supportive around this. But it only takes you so far because you can't know where things will be in a few yes. months from now even. Yes. And so this constant, all I hear like in, in these journeys and stories of parenting is the constant elongated pivoting. You're always reshaping and resetting and going okay new learning oh that's a thing oh I didn't realize oh that worked we can build on that and it's experimental not because you said we're going to set up a home you go there and we're just going to see how it goes every moment is experimental every decision every meal every test you're watching to see what what does it produce or doesn't produce and then what do we build in our bank and our toolkits and help support differently so person-centered and collaborative right and let go of expectations the the christmas dinner was an example of an expectation i had Uh you know i thought oh okay because when they were at home they always you know no i let go don't be married to expectations because they they will just and I love Karen how you say pivot. I, yes, it is all about pivoting, and mm-hmm. it, it's we have to think of it. A, a, a wonderful guest, um, who's who's a doctor, told me that we need to think of FASD and other brain-based disabilities as a spiral staircase. So you're going up, but oh, you really yes. don't know what's. And I love that. I, I love that, that illustration. Awesome. Yeah, I love that illustration. Yeah. And he is on the front lines. He is diagnosing and on the front lines. And he used oh, that cool. illustration. And I thought that is so brilliant and so beautiful. It, it's a spiral yeah. staircase. We don't know what's coming up ahead. And there's a lot of turns and yeah. we can't see at the top of the staircase. So we just have yeah. to have hope in that next step and in that next step. And, and I yeah. really think 
that's, that's our whole journey. That's FASD. That's, you know, brain-based neurodiversity. That's interdependence. That's this whole journey of parenting a child whose brain is wired differently. Mm. Wow. Okay. <laughs> when you opened today and you said, I love the name of the podcast and you named why, and really that's just because you get the lived experience of the mud in a trench and how oh, the yeah. companionship means so much in yes. community with each other when we're all in the mud. Um, and I want to finish by saying, I love the name of your organization because FASD hope is the thing that drew me toward you to find who is this human and how do we talk to her? We need to talk to her because of the hope piece, because I think what tends to happen is parents fall in the category of resignation. I resign. It's stuck. This is just frustrating and hard. That's all it can be. Or I, it's so hard to look at. I refuse to refuse and not in a choice way, but almost like it's so scary to me because of what I've heard and the stigma attached that I don't know how to bend and adjust my sails to feel good moving forward. And so then we miss out on resources. We miss out on support. We miss out on community because we're isolated in this journey. So I wanted so badly to give anyone who will listen the opportunity to hear a story that says both the mud in the trench and the hope that is possible. So when I asked you strategically help us dream, I meant that because I think we stop short on a lot of our kids with brain injury to say, because it's permanent, there's nothing we can do. And I wanted that to blow the ceiling off that and say, we don't actually know what's possible in a month, in a year, in five years, in 10 years. And so to find each other and to share those stories of hope, give us that tether point to something possible in the future. I really, really appreciated how you articulated that today. Thank you for spending time with me talking about that. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. This has been a wonderful conversation. And I, again, I, when you are in the trenches and your boots have mud on them, you still yeah. can have so much hope. Yeah. Yeah. The sun can shine. So good. Thank you, Natalie. Have a great afternoon. Thank you, Karen, so much. Thanks for spending time with me today. Remember to check out the show notes for related resources. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, or you can also subscribe to my online learning page at my.thrive-life forward slash LRL series, where you'll get updates, extra tools for your toolkit. And if there's a topic that you want me to cover in this podcast, please shoot me a message. I would love to hear from you. Shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in this mud. I will see you back here next time.